Okay. Here we stand some three years after we started with an introductory message by Tim to the book of Romans. Around 40 sermons have been preached. We did have kind of a pause there because of our, uh, the way the services were adjusted due to COVID. But we have now found ourselves in the final chapter of the book of Romans. This may be the last message <laughs> from the book of Romans, and then again, it may not. Uh, we will see how the Lord leads our brother Tim's heart as he prepares for the next message. But my intention today is to look at the entire chapter at a high level to some degree in Romans chapter 16. And as you look back, hopefully, while we certainly understand you're not going to remember everything, I don't remember everything I preached. Um, and I'm sure that you all do not as well. However, hopefully there has been a greater understanding and a better love for the, the book of Romans that Paul wrote. Because it is such a huge theological source of information. It teaches us about the redemption. It teaches us about justification by faith. It teaches us the reality of who we are. It teaches us about the sovereignty of God working within the context of human history, uh, even to the point of salvation. But as I mentioned several sermons ago from chapter 14, I believe that the Lord impressed Paul and inspired him to write this letter, not simply to give them theological tidbits and an encyclopedia full of theological terms, but that he gave the apostle Paul this message to the church at Rome so that they might understand that they are to live in unity with one another, knowing that each of them have been saved by the same grace that they have been saved from the same sinfulness, that they have been delivered from the same wrath of God, that they have been given the hope of eternal life that is found in the same Jesus Christ. Our songs were selected today uh, because they were high. We like to sing high songs to ruin our voice, you know, especially when I'm preaching. But actually they were chosen because each of them have a very specific message about who Christ is to us. To us. Not just to me. Not just to you. But the very hope that each of us have in Christ is common to us. There is no grace that has been extended to you, whether it be for strength for ministry, whether it be wisdom for your life, whether it be for hope of eternal salvation, that is not also through Christ given to me. Now, each of us have been given, given different graces to minister. Romans chapter 12 makes that clear. But it's the same grace that each of us have partaken of in order to have a life that is not only full of purpose, but will end in wondrous hope in Christ forever. Today, I would like for us, as we consider this last chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, 
to consider being unified in obedience of faith. One of our core values here at Cornerstone Baptist Church is in regards to authentic Christian relationships, which reads for us, spiritual transformation begins only in community, not in isolation. Therefore, we commit to building authentic relationships with one another. We seek to know and be known by our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Cornerstone Baptist Church, we understand that we learn together. We learn about Christ. We live with Christ together. We understand that we can't do this isolated. I realize that there are many people in Christianity today that feel like church really isn't that important, that it's not that high of a priority. And you know what? I really can't find the right church. I really can't find the right congregation. I can't find the right ministry. I can't find the right opportunities. And so, therefore, I'll just. Stick with my prayer time. I'll stick with my Bible study at home and I'll watch TV once in a while. Or maybe I'll, you know, have an opportunity to speak with some Christian friends that I work with from time to time. But you know what? It's really not that important to find my place in church. Well, you can't be unified if you're not in church. Now, that doesn't mean that you just find a church. Obviously, there are great criteria that we look for in attending and becoming a part of a local assembly of believers. But we believe in authentic Christian relationships and understand that that happens, that, that it is necessary, it is imperative that it includes belonging to a local group of believers so that we can be known and that we can know, that we can hold each other accountable, that we can be encouragements to one another, that we can have joy and, 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 and rejoice when things are, are great and we can have others that can sympathize and weep with us when we are in sorrow. And that we can sing together songs that point us in the right direction. That we can sit under the same word and be taught the same words of wisdom that will teach us and correct us and reprove us and to instruct us in righteousness. that we can fellowship with one another, that we are united. Psalms 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, obviously, we, we, we gather from this that the church did not start until New Testament days, because if the psalmist had known anything about Baptist churches, he would have known that there's, you know, unity in a church. What? Um, how can that be? Of course, I jest. But unfortunately, it's funny because we know the reality that it's not very common. So indeed, it is a good and pleasant thing when brothers and sisters in Christ dwell together in unity. Very familiar with the purpose that Jesus gave as he says in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, if you're going to be united, there, there has to be a, an element there called love for one another. 
Now, you can love one another and you might not be united because you might have a brother or sister who doesn't want to be united. But you can't have unity without love. And, and that is what the calling card for the Christian is to the world to say, how do you how do we know that you belong to Jesus? Because your hair is a certain length. Do we know that you belong to Jesus because you don't do certain behaviors? Do we know that you belong to Jesus because you adhere to certain rules and regulations? Well, there might be some truth to some of those things. But Jesus said the world is going to know that you're really my disciple. Is if they see you loving one another. Because they'll know something's different about you. Because it's easy to love somebody if they pull for the same team that we're pulling for on the athletic field or in the arena. It's easy to love one another when they have the same political aspirations and persuasions that we have. It's easy to love one another when they look like us and they act like us and they behave like us. It's easy to love one another when we're already the same. But when you bring a group of people from all sorts of backgrounds and educational experiences and, and homes and family situations, and they come in contact with Jesus Christ and he becomes Lord of their life. And now these people are coming together, not because of all that other peripheral stuff, but because they all are serving one Lord in accordance to one spirit working within all of them. The world notices. The world might not like it. The world probably won't like it and will probably fight it. There's probably a few people who would profess to be believers in Christ who don't like it very much either. But we are to be unified as we are obedient to the faith. And I trust that it's not just, well, Mark, that's just your opinion, but that we'll actually see that as we look at Romans chapter 16. It's not the ordinary passage of scripture that you would find any word of instruction or exhortation for after all this is just the closing of the letter right this is just paul's last words to some individuals what can we truly gather from this but in the book of romans particularly not that it's unique in the book of romans but it's uniquely long in this list of people that paul is addressing and referring to so as we look at the value of unity, let's begin by looking at verse one and following. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord and in a worthy, uh, in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way or may she need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risks their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also, also the church in their house. Uh, greet my beloved Epinetus. Now, I have to remind you that I wasn't taught how to read these names in Bible college. I don't know if Tim got that in his language studies as well. Uh, so if, if there's any snickering going on while I read this, that will add another 30 minutes to the sermon. So, um, <laughs> of course, you knew that was coming anyway, so that's, that's fine. No. Verse 5, or verse 4, who, uh, verse 5, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. 
Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncratus, Belgian, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. We go down to verse 21. There's more greeting. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. Octurius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Fortus, greet you. other than being a long list of names that we are not familiar with in most cases. It's greet, greet, greet. It's not a complicated word. There's no secret theological significance. And if we really uncover the original meaning of this word, we're really gonna be overwhelmed, except for the fact there was a way of greeting, right? Greet, different. Or cultures around the world have different customs. You've got some cultures in the world that greet each other by, they shake their own hand. You've got other cultures like ours that you reach out and you actually shake, which we really don't shake somebody's hand. We actually just grip it and move it up and down. I, I, you know, if you see somebody come along and shaking your hand, uh, you might want to you know, beware. And then there are cultures that are still in the world in which we live today that greet each other with a kiss. There are many U European cultures that when you go and you greet someone that you are not only familiar with, but you're close to, you go up and you kiss them on each side of their cheek. There's nothing special about it. It's just the way they greet one another. When In Paul's day, that would be the way you would greet one another. I remember growing up in church, and one of the things I truly enjoyed about going to church, even as a young person, whether I be before I was a teenager, even as a teenager, that one of the ways in which we greeted, I grew up in a church that we, it was obviously before COVID, but it was, you know, one of those where you actually could hug people. Now, I know that you all are familiar with those types of customs as well, uh, and particularly the older people. They seem to be more fluffy for me where you could go up, and even as a young person, I just love to go up, and the, and the older folks and the older saints of the church just go up and just squeeze them. 
And as I got older and, and my arms got long enough where I could go and I could just reach around and, and, and just hold them and just, and, and it was just nothing strange about it. No one thought I was doing anything inappropriate. And then I remembered as I became a pastor that I had to be a little bit more, you know, cultured and a little bit more hands-offish. I didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea if I went up and hung you know, someone of the opposite sex. I didn't want anybody to think that I was doing anything appropriate. But beware of those older ladies. I still went up and I gave them a good hug, side hug. That was just the way we greeted. That, that, that was almost something that made your life fulfilling to some degree. I realize it's just a small part of it, but the way you greet people. Right? Even men with men just going up, shaking hands, and before you know it, somebody just, you know, they you know shake your hand over and they just grab you and they hug you and it's like, good to see you today, brother so-and-so. And literally, that is what people did in Paul's day, and that's literally what people do to some degree today. Now, Paul was writing to a church that he had not been to. But yet he still did not lose the capacity of understanding the importance of greeting one another. That even though he couldn't reach out and grab someone by the shoulder and kiss them on each cheek and give them a holy kiss, he wanted to communicate that. I want you to greet one another this way. I want you to know that I'm greeting you this way. And so we find the value of unity just in communication. That you just don't go up to complete strangers and do this. Now, you might do, there might be officials in certain you know, official capacities that they have to do this because of photo opportunities and, and they're doing it because they're representing certain groups and, and they make an official coming together. You know, the real greetings come to people who you love, people, you know, family members you haven't seen in a while. When you get together over the holidays, you probably saw some people that you may see maybe once or twice, if not even ever during the rest of the year. And you see them and you go up and you hug them and you go up and you, and you greet them. Because there is a unity there. When you see people in solemn situations. When somebody's grieving in a funeral home and you go and you walk through that line of visitation. Sometimes you may be compelled because there is a unity in your grief. You understand what they're going through and you want them to know that you love them and you want them to know that you're there for them. And so you go and, and even though you may never ever the rest of your life touch these people, but these are people that you may go up and you, and you just hug them because that you want to communicate to them that there's a bond that you have. You understand the grief of death. The same thing may be true of a wedding that you may not, again, be used to hugging people, but you go up and you see people and you understand the significance of this part of their life. You see people like during graduation ceremonies, they realize, you know, I may never see you again because we're getting ready to go off in different directions. And, and so you hug one another and, and there is a, a point of where you are physically. Paul couldn't do that, but yet he was communicating that through words. There is a value of unity that we see even in these greetings to people from all walks of life. Now, before we go and talk a little bit more about that, let me go back to verse number one, where there is not a greeting, but there is a commendation. Paul said, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, why would he have to do this? Well, there's at least two good reasons I can think of. One, she was a woman. 
Phoebe was being sent with this letter to the church at Rome. And in that culture, that just didn't happen a lot. And so there needed to be an affirmation that she is one of us. So I commend her to you. Accept her as if it were me. She's coming with my authority. She's coming with my greeting. Which is the second. She was a servant of the church. I commend you because she belongs to the body of Christ and she serves it. She embodies servanthood within the body of Christ. And I want you to welcome her in the Lord, a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. She's family. She's one of us. And so I commend her to you. You take care of her. Again, unity. Don't treat her as an outsider. Don't treat her as some sort of church official in some capacity that you keep your arms distance from her. But you welcome her. Because I'm commending her to you as a servant of the church. Now, there's some other significant individuals, Priscilla and Aquila, to begin with. These are people we are told about in other passages, particularly in Acts chapter 18, where we're introduced to them, where when Paul goes to Corinth, he meets this couple. This couple was from Rome. But because the emperor had scattered the church in Rome, they had to leave. They were persecuted Christians. Some of the first. And Paul would not have met them at Corinth had it not been for that. And from that relationship starting at Corinth, they became travelers with Paul on his missionary journeys. He even left them at Ephesus to take care of a man called Apollos that you may have heard of in the book of Corinthians. Uh, because while he was a great, eloquent speaker, he, you know, there were a few little small touches around the edges that he needed to get shored up, that he needed to sharpen on with it theologically so that his preacher would be a little bit more accurate. And so Priscilla and Aquila stayed around to help him understand the scriptures better. We have a host of people that we may have familiar names that we've seen other places in Scripture. There are names here that we find that are common in Roman culture that archaeologists have discovered on plaques in different places. But for the most part, we don't know who most of these people are. Paul did. And I don't believe that Paul is one of these. Well, can you get me a roster from the church at Rome? Before I write this letter so that I can at least act like I know that. No. Because Paul described what much of them were doing. Also among this group of people, based on the way that the language is written, would indicate that some of these folks are slaves. That they would be individuals that belong to a household. You've got individuals who are Jewish. So you have a, 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 a large diversity that's a part of this group that Paul is wanting them to be greeted, to embrace. And as I mentioned earlier, many of these 
are described as those who are serving. They're part of the ministry. They're, this is a united group of people, but they were not without their threats to that. We'll look at that in a minute. But, but as Paul was referring to each of these individuals and speaking about different qualities, it reminds me in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 where we read, and he gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. You see, Paul understood that the church at Rome was fulfilling the task that the apostles and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers had intended, that they were they were learning, they were being taught, they were being built up. Why? So that they could be a part of the ministry. And what was the point of the ministry? To unify them in the faith and to help them understand who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, that they would be mature. And don't mistake the ministry of the church as anything else. Now, the church ministry will show itself in all different types of ways. But the main purpose of Cornerstone Baptist Church, as it has been based upon the truth preached and taught by the apostles and continue to be taught through pastors and teachers, the elders of the church, the purpose is to build us up for the work of the ministry so that others will know, and so that we will be unified in our faith so that when the winds of deception and deceit and false doctrine come along, we will be able to stand. That every wind of doctrine that you see swirling around in our world today will not overwhelm us, but rather we will be able to overcome the deceitfulness and the craftiness of the evil one. We must remember that the ministry of the church, as Christ has equipped it, should result in maturity that can stand united against the enemy to the truth of God's word and the gospel. That's the value of unity. It's not just a matter of having a group that you can hug and shake hands with, because guess what? You've got all kinds of social groups that you can do that in. You've got all kinds of alumni committees. You've got all sorts of social country clubs. You've got all sorts of sports groups. You've got all sorts of uh, you know, people that go to the same restaurant and see each other there all the time because they're always there. You've got all sorts of groups that you can find unity in. But the unity that you find in church equips us for the work of the ministry and helps us stand against its enemy. Thus, the authentic Christian relationship that we seek to have here in our church. 
that's the value of unity. Let's take a look at the threat to unity, which is somewhat indicated there in Ephesians chapter 4. But let's look in verse 17 of Romans chapter 16. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and avoid them. There are some commentators over the course of church history that have somehow thought that this was sort of added on to the letter to the book of Romans, that Paul, this would be such a such a change of thought for him to start his greetings to uh, to those to whom he was writing and then all of a sudden start talking about some warning that somebody else must have added this on after he finished his part of the letter up. But if you understand the value of unity, you understand that this fits perfectly. If you understand that the purpose of the church is to unify us in the truth, that you understand this warning very well, that you know what, as much as I want to greet you, and by the way, as I'm greeting you, because we are all one, even though I'm not in Rome right now, we're all one in Christ. Let me appeal to you that you watch out for something. You watch out for those who are trying to divide us up. Those who are creating obstacles that are contrary to what you have been taught by the apostles and what the pastors and the teachers in your church are teaching you according to the truth of the scriptures. Watch out for them. Now, this is not just a, you know, stand out on the bow of the ship and just sort of watch over the horizon and something kind of catches your eye. Hey, wait a minute, something doesn't seem right over there. The Greek word that we have translated for watch here is the same word that we it, it, you could easily transliterate and understand it. It's the word scope. Now, as I was thinking about this, uh, it, it really helps us because we're very familiar with that. Now, now, Mark and Michelle are great astronomers, and every time something goes flying across the sky or if something is predicted to fly across the sky, I'm asking them, now, what is it that I'm supposed to be looking for and hope that they'll tell me that it's going to be there before I go to bed? or after I wake up normally, but usually it's, you know, only they, they would get up for this at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, and see it. But when they, but when they do this, they, they use a telescope. Now a telescope is not an instrument that you would use in, now maybe they would because they are very familiar with the things that they would be looking for, but I'm not gonna set up a telescope and just kind of, you know, every now and then just kind of walk by and not, nothing there and just, and just kind of keep on going. Nor if, and there are those of you who were involved in the medical field, and you may have had times in your training and maybe even your practice now where you use a microscope. Now, they probably have been replaced like typewriters have been replaced. I don't know. Uh, but there's probably some way in which you are looking at something that's very small. You don't just passively look into a microscope unless you just are bored and you're going through the classroom in high school and you say, I wonder, and there's nothing there. No, these instruments in which we use this term scope are intentional instruments. Intentional, not passive. So that I can see Mark and Michelle setting up their telescope outside knowing that, you know, there's something coming and I'm going to know exactly where it's supposed to be and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to look at that. Just as if you were looking at a microscope, you're probably going to place whatever you're trying to see that's so small that you can't see it. You're going to put it on a little slide and you're going to know where it's at. And you're not just going to just flippantly put the slide up there. You're going to actually you know, move it underneath where the lens is at so that when you look in, you know that there's going to be something to look forward. 
Paul says, watch out for. He doesn't say be ready for. He doesn't be, be prepared for. He says, watch out for this. Because this will happen. There will be those. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He gives them a word of promise that they are not, they are not hopeless in this endeavor. But they better be very sure that there will be those who will seek to divide. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us that there are six things, no, seven things that are an abomination to God. And number seven is those who sow discord among the brothers. God hates disunity. Now, don't misunderstand God's hatred for disunity, for God's acceptance of all things. Don't confuse Christ coming to down a cross just for anybody. But there are those to whom are going to be enemies of that cross. But watch out for those who seek to divide because they're feeding on their own appetite. We are to avoid them. We are to deviate from the direction in which they are going. Philippians 3 helps us here as Paul, as he's saying in those familiar words, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, that same word that he uses in Ephesians about those pastors, teachers, are equipping those for Christ so that we might be mature he says, those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything in you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in, or join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Brothers and sisters, there are those who are among the body of Christ who have no greater pleasure than to divide us as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those who are enemies of the cross. There are those who seek to replace the necessity of grace for the sufficiency of grace. Let me say that another way. There are those who say, well, yes, it's important for grace. It's important that Jesus died. 
But it's not enough that Jesus died. There are those among the body of Christ who would add to the gospel. Saying, yes, you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. But in Paul's day, they had this thing called circumcision. And unless you were circumcised, you really aren't a believer yet. If you're still eating those unclean foods, you're not really a believer yet. If you're still wearing your hair that long, brother, you're really not a believer yet. If you're wearing those, you know, pantsuits to church women, you're not a believer yet. If And I'm just, if you're still, you know, if you don't think the King Jet, I'm just, you know, I could go on and on and on and on. And even in our world today, there are those who would seek to replace The simplicity of understanding my, myself as a sinner, needing the grace of God to save me from my sin, and they would replace it with, well, you also need to be culturally relevant, and you also need to make sure that you don't treat these people a certain way. And you need to make sure that you're doing certain things to make up for what you've done wrong, and you need to do all these sorts of things that are corroding the gospel. There are those who would like for us to think that, you know what, it's okay because you were born a certain way that, you know what, you really don't have to change that because that's just who you are. As long as you believe in Jesus, you really don't have to repent of your sinfulness. You really don't re need to repent of that which is sin. Just don't do it. There are those who would look at Romans chapter 1 and and cringe because it is very telling that all of us are depraved and all of us are suppressing the truth in our unrighteousness. But there are some who think, well, because the people in Nepal had never heard the gospel, then you know what? It's really not that important. God's going to give them you know, sort of a, a pass. Because God couldn't really be that mean and, and terrible to send somebody to hell simply because they've never seen or heard a depiction of the cross of Christ. Or, well, you know what? That, that cult really isn't that bad because, after all, they acknowledge that Jesus Christ was a real person. And after all, they believe that Jesus died on the cross. And after all, and we start to back up and say, well, you know what? Maybe it's not that bad. When what we have done is just completely, not just watered down the gospel, but we have replaced it with our own. And there are enemies of the cross within the body of Christ that threaten our unity in that gospel. Because they add to or take away from that which is essential. Now, just to be clear, we know what that is, because I would hate for anybody to hear me ramble on about somebody or some people that are enemies of the gospel is that well what is it the gospel then it's to understand that as we go through the book of romans we see ourselves as sinners it doesn't matter who we are it doesn't matter if we're a jew it doesn't matter if we're a greek it doesn't matter if we're a gentile it doesn't matter if we grew up in africa it doesn't matter if we grew up in christian america it doesn't matter if we grew up in the north pole we're sinners and the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have peace with God because we have been justified. We're not waiting for justification. We're not looking for something new. We have received it because Jesus Christ has paid with his life taking our sin upon himself so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Complete. Even knowing that our flesh still weighs us down, even though we struggle with wanting to do this, but we don't, and not wanting to do this, but we do. Who is to save me from my wretched soul? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We have been adopted by the Holy Spirit into the family of God so that we, like the rest of the world in this cruel, corrupt, sinful world, wait for a day of redemption so that no matter what I suffer through in this world as a believer, there is nothing that can compare to the glory that shall be revealed that is promised to me because I am in Jesus. And that I'm more than a conqueror through him because he is sovereign. He is sovereign from the very beginning to the very end. I can trust him to know that if I am in Christ, that I'm his forevermore. And that should make such a difference in my life that I present myself a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto him. That's my reasonable service so that I might be able to prove that which is perfect and holy and acceptable, the good will of God. That I'm not conformed to this world any longer, but that I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind. And that when I see something that is attacking the gospel that God has graciously given to us, I need to watch out and avoid it. But it's hard. You know why? Because they're crafty. They use smooth talk. It's actually here twice. The term that we translate eulogy Pastor, you're talking about eulogies and how it's often used in our funeral services, regardless of what type of life the person's in. We just want to give everybody a stamp of a good impression on somebody because we don't want to talk bad about anybody, which I don't know if we need to really spend the funeral service talking about how bad people are, except for the fact that the reason why they're here is because they're sinful. They're, they're, they're sinful. That's what brings upon death. But besides that, here we've got the two words that these type of people use. Good talk and good talk. Now, the first one has, it's a compound word. that says it's not just good talk, but it's good talk that actually puts you to action. It moves you into activity. In other words, I, I make something sound so good that you just don't sit back and say, man, that's kind of nice. You're actually ready to take your checkbook out and write it, you know, and then buy it. It's not just on TV on that 30-second infomercial where you're like, man, I, I think I could, that would be kind of cool if I had one of those. But when you actually take your credit card out and dial up the number, they, I mean, that's this, this, is, this is how they're talking to you. I mean, they have convinced you. 
smooth talk and flattery is the way the English Standard Version translates, which is very appropriate. But it's deceptive. Makes you feel good because you feel like that you're doing more than just getting saved. You, you feel like you're actually making a difference in the world in which you live. It makes you feel like you're actually part of a good cause. It makes you feel like you're you're sort of making up for where people have been wrong. It sort of makes you feel like that you're doing more than what you need to do. And how that is so appealing to our flesh. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're weaker or mature, it's imperative that we watch out for, that we fix our eye on those who seek to deceive and avoid them. Knowing that in the end, God will ultimately destroy those who are his enemies, including those that cause division. It's kind of like when you go through the Psalms, it's just really refreshing sometimes to read those words of knowing that, you know what? One day, God is going to take care of it. One day, the evil will see the corruption that they have brought upon their own lives. Here, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The day in which there is no more deception, the day in which there is nobody trying to trick you out of that which is true, the day in which we would no longer have to worry about people trying to fool us, that is going to be a day of rejoicing. It's coming one day because God's going to crush the evil one. He's going to crush Satan. And notice where he's going to crush him. Under our feet. which means we are part of the victory. We are part of the overcoming of the evil one because of what Christ has done for us. Because there's a threat to unity. There's, there's value to unity. We see that just in the way Paul related to the other believers. We see the threat in which Paul warned them about. But there is grounds for unity as, as we close. Verse 25. Now unto him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The only wise God and be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. They say, well, where do you see the grounds for unity there? Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. If we're unified in anything other than that, it's not biblical Christian unity. That doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything else. It doesn't mean we have to be like everybody else. It doesn't mean that everything else has to be the same. But if we do, if we miss this one thing, what Paul preached, Jesus Christ and him crucified, if we miss the preaching of Jesus Christ, we have no grounds for biblical unity. And it is God 
him who is able to strengthen you according to that, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Peter talks about this in, first, in, his, in the first chapter of his first letter to the church in which the prophets wrote these things down and they searched and they searched even as they were the ones writing it. They were trying to figure out who in the world is this Messiah supposed to be? When is he coming? And they searched it out and they studied and they talked about it and none of them were alive when he came. Yet they wrote of him. And more importantly, they believed in him. But this is the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, which right there is a really important part to understand that even the, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament that many in our day are willing to just let sit on the bookshelf because we don't need the Old Testament. It's irrelevant. We just need the New Testament. Well, actually, we do need the Old Testament because that is where we find out about Jesus. The New Testament is just simply pointing a direction and say, hey, we now know who we've been talking about in the Old Testament. We now know the meaning of the Old Testament. Now we know what it all means for us. Except for all that prophetic stuff you have to come. We can have, you know, maybe that will be our next preaching series that Tim will start out with uh, talking about, you know, no, just kidding. But this is our grounds for unity. To bring about the obedience of faith and hopefully you will recall because we mentioned it from time to time in the 40 or so sermons that we've gone through here going all the way back to chapter one where paul says speaking of jesus christ our lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations all people not just jews not just religious people, not just people who think that they're searching for the truth. It's all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's, that's, that's warming enough right there for me to want to be with Paul all the time, for him just to remind me, including you, every one of us who are reading this letter as a believer in Jesus Christ, should take comfort, including you, who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Not because you just woke up one morning and figured it all out one day. Because as we were singing earlier today, there was a time when I was walking along, thought I had it all together, didn't know that the road I was leading me, or lead, it was on, was leading to hell. And if it had been up to me, I'd still be refusing it. But now, I know that Christ pursued me, and I'm his. And that's grounds for unity right there. Because that's all of our testimonies. The specifics will most likely be different. But I can promise you, that's our story. In Christ together and any threat to that we should all together avoid it we should all together detest it and get away from it and be strengthened in the one who has given us the truth of the gospel 
a closing recently we I've had the opportunity to um, spend some time with friends of ours as a matter of fact two couples and the two ladies I grew up in church the first 20 years of my life they were there in church we grew up in the same church we all three now go to different churches one of them and their husband who happened to be my best friend in high school they still attend the church that I grew up in. The other is in a different church. But none of us are in the same type of church that we were in before. I've shared some things about my church experience and my history and things that were not so healthy. But at the same time, there were people that I loved, as I was talking about earlier. That was one of the things I enjoyed being with people in my church and being united with them. But as I was talking about them, about the differences where we, because we actually, this is the first time that we had been able to get together and with ones in what, 25 years? And we moved back to the area where they both, you know, both these couples live. And just kind of talking to them about what has happened in their life in, in church and, and, and why are you not going to the church that we grew up in? And why are you still in the church that we grew up in? And they were asking me things about the church that I'm in. And the one thing at the end of the day of the story that each of us can all relate to was in spite of all the division, in spite of all the fights, in spite of all the arguments that took place, that now we're at peace. We're going in the same direction. We're united in our effort to serve Christ. Now, these are two different churches that I probably wouldn't be in because of just you know, different preferences that I have. But you know what? The bottom line is that they're together, they're unified in spite of the attempts to destroy the church. And while I know some of your stories and while I may not know all of your stories, I know that all of us are longing for a place to be unified. And I believe that each of you who are members of this church today are here as members of the church because there is a unity and not because we like the color blue of our auditorium, not because of the balanced temperature of our thermostat throughout the seasons, not because we enjoy the distance in which we get to travel or have to travel. But I truly believe in my heart that the reason why we're pursuing an authentic Christian relationship here at Cornerstone it's because we know and we cherish the gospel. But let's not let that detract us from the fact that there are enemies. There are enemies that are smooth talkers. They sound good. They're persuasive. They're educated. They almost make sense. They're appealing to the emotions. But they're serving themselves and dividing the church. The only good division is when we get rid of that which is bad <laughs> in the church. But you know, at the end of the day, we let that, Jesus is the one who said that he's going to come and do what? Divide the wheat from the tear? He's a, he's a good judge. I think we can trust him. That doesn't mean that we don't watch out and avoid. That doesn't mean that we don't keep our distance when we see 
what is coming because our unity is so valuable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you, Lord, thanking you for the privilege of sharing your truth. This is certainly not my truth. This is certainly not my gospel. But you've been gracious to spare my life through this exhortation to your people, people that you've bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. These these are people that I get to worship with. These are individuals that I can join in ministry with. But these are your people. And my responsibility has been great to feed your people. I pray that your word would, as it is able and effective in doing so, would have its place in our heart and our mind. I pray that we would understand what Paul was even concluding his letter to the church at Rome with. I pray that you'd help us to understand how it applies to our life. I pray that you'd help us as we seek to make adjustments in the way we look at things, that we may pursue different actions, that we would repent of maybe areas where we have been lazy, maybe areas in which we have been uninformed, maybe areas in which we have been inactive and passive. I pray that you'd help us to be diligent and sober and alert in our service for you. I pray that you'd help us to understand there is an enemy that is seeking to destroy not just Cornerstone, but the entire body of Christ. But we thank you that you've given us a promise that even the gates of hell itself will not prevail, that your church will be victorious. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we place our hope and our faith in your gospel, that you would strengthen us, through the teaching and the preaching of your word and that we would all look forward to a day in which you will crush our enemy under our feet for the glory of Jesus Christ our Savior in whom we, whose name we pray. Amen. Pastor.